Hey, welcome back, Noggin Notes listeners. I could not be happier to be back recording a podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm the host, and it's been a few weeks. We, uh, we've flown into a pandemic, if you haven't noticed, and that threw things a little bit for a loop. Uh, before that, uh, we had like six episodes lined up, and uh, and none of them materialized. And I'm a little disappointed about that, but I know that all those individuals will be back uh, eventually recording with me, and we'll, we'll get their stories out too. So in the meantime, I have Rebecca Syed Sheriff today, and she is a phenomenal lady. She's a psychiatrist out of the United Kingdom, Oxford trained, and uh, world traveled. She's really brilliant. I'm not going to spoil the interview. That's for you guys to listen to. It's it's amazing. Uh, in the meantime, I just want to express how much appreciation I have for the people across the globe who are going out of their way to make things happen uh, in areas where maybe we just took for granted that things would happen. And that spans all sorts of industries and all sorts of innovation from distilleries that have been shut down and are now manufacturing hand sanitizer to mental health professionals who have switched to telehealth to keep access available to those who need it to, of course, our doctors and nurses who are dipping in and out of hospital settings and exposing themselves to this virus um, it's, it's just really heartwarming to see such selflessness. And on the other side of that coin, there's a lot of toxicity. Uh, there's still political bickering. There's still stone throwing going on. Uh, social media is continuing to be ever more polarized. And if you're stuck in that trap, I, I invite you to just turn it off. Uh, there's, there's very little to be gained by participating in the back and forth of, of the sniping. And during a time of uh, great stress, uh, one does not need to intake more stress through uh, 280 characters on Twitter or negativity on Facebook or um, rumor mongering or conspiracy theories. It just, it just doesn't help. So uh, I invite you to just turn it off. Be at peace where you are. Uh, this is one of those rare times in life where if you're unemployed and it's not of your own doing, um, you can sit still and learn how to be still while the storm swirls around you. That all being said, if you're bored, we have Audible to offer. Audible sponsors Naga Notes, and we're very proud of that. Go to audibletrial.com if you haven't already and find out how you can access their unlimited, unmatched content of audio files and content. It includes audiobooks, of course, but also much more. AudibleTrial.com slash Naganotes. You get a free 30-day trial, and you can cancel anytime, and you can even download an audiobook and keep it, even if you cancel. AudibleTrial.com slash Naganotes. Go check it out. Get your free audiobook. Keep it even if you cancel, and uh, see what they have to offer. It's pretty sweet. You can custom tailor your selections. Uh, I've done it. I really enjoy it. And if you want, you can even get Christian Conti's book, Walking Through Anger. It's one of my favorites right now. He has been a friend and mentor to me for a long time. We plug him a lot on this show. DrChristianConti.com. Uh, if you want to find out more, it's DrChristianConti. 
Facebook.com. He's not paying me to say this. He's uh, just a really awesome person who has a lot to contribute to society. You can check out his YouTube channel also. But his book is available on Audible, Walking Through Anger. Check it out as his life life's work, really, on yield theory, which is something he developed way back in 1998 and helps people interact in such a way that you learn how to circumvent people's fight-or-flight responses when you communicate with them so that you can be heard the way that you want to be heard. Obviously, we're also sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, the company that I co-own with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell, in Reno, Nevada. And uh, I guess that's about it. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to continue to contribute to society. I'm happy that we're... um, in a tough time because it forces us to count our blessings and focus in on the silver linings that are yet to come. And uh, happy to continue to record podcasts. Thank you, thank you, thank you for downloading our content. I'm honored. And this is my interview with Rebecca Syed Sheriff. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. I found it fascinating. I learned a lot. You'll hear me as I take notes throughout the podcast. Um, enjoy. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I am really honored to be joined by one of the top minds in psychiatry in the UK. And actually, you spent a lot of time in Australia, too. Um, this is Rebecca Syed Sheriff. She goes by uh, all three names in her publications. And, and I want you to explain that after you say hi to everybody, because I think it's I think it's cute. <laughs> Yes, so uh, I think you're being very flattering, but I'm a a doctor that specialised in mental health. I'm also a researcher, so we call ourselves epidemiologists interested in um, mental illness and and the risk factors and and how we can predict who's going to do, how people are going to do and how we can help. Um, yeah, so I'm working clinically and as, as a researcher in Oxford at the moment, but was previously in Thailand and previous to that in Australia. And the funny story about my name was the, uh, the accident that happened when I was about to get married and I was publishing one of my first papers uh, and it was being published in Syed until my new husband got very sensitive and wondered why I wasn't using my married name. So I contacted the journal earnestly and said, please, could you use Sheriff? And there was a terrible mix up. So I ended up with both names on the publication and, and that stuck. And so, uh, Doc, do, do, uh, how does it work culturally over there? Do you, in America, everybody wants to be known by their, uh, their degree title. Uh, so everybody who has a PhD or an EDD or a PsyD or an MD goes by doctor and there's all this like role conflation um, to, to the public. Do you, do you guys call yourselves doctor? Do you introduce yourself as Dr. Sheriff or Dr. Said Sheriff? Or do you just go by Rebecca? I go by Rebecca, but I, but I have a medical degree and a PhD. So right. um, I'm tempted to call myself Dr. Dr. Rebecca. Yes, that's right. Well, and I have two master's degrees. So um, if people really like <laughs> dig their heels in and go, call me doctor, I'll be like, oh, as soon as you call me double master, which will never <laughs> happen. Um, but thanks for indulging me on that. So uh, Thailand is important because that is how you ended up on this podcast. And I, I love hearing stories. And I think, I think the audience does because they're just, they're fun. Um, I love hearing stories about international connectivity. You met Noggin Notes founder, Safiso Rapinga in Thailand in a very unique way. Tell, tell everybody about that. 
So we had uh, no idea probably for the first few months that we knew each other that we both had an interest in mental health. And that is because we met through rugby. So I was playing for um, an expat team and in Bangkok and ended up actually playing a bit for the Lao, um, uh, Lao team, which is a good story because they do great work um, uh, in their national um, development squad with rugby pass it back, developing um, players from the provinces and teaching them life skills. Oh, that's cool. So real huge impacts on social and pre-mental um, well-being as well there. So yeah, through playing for in Bangkok and then going over to Cambodia, I met I met him because he was playing rugby as well. So yeah, on the rugby pitch and in the bar and yeah, very good to know that he also had an interest in mental health. Yeah, that's super cool and I'm glad to have you. So um People didn't tune in to hear about our uh, life stories, though. I don't think so. <laughs> I want to. I want to start talking to you about, you know, men- mental al- mental illness, mental wellness, mental health. How we go about treating it. You are a psychiatrist. Um, you do prescribe. You study this stuff. You have certain interests within the field. Um, and I, I'm just want to. I want to open the floor up to have you just talk a little bit, and then I'll sprinkle in some questions as I typically do. Um, start with your passions, because you got a passion for youth and youth mental health um, start there and and then we can we can progress well i think my interest in youth mental health actually comes from a very sort of personal view um and that was that as i was growing up and as friends and family had mental health problems i felt that there was a, a huge mental health need especially in young people that just wasn't being met or wasn't being met appropriately Um, So I think when resources are scarce, there's two ways of doing things. And certainly in the UK, in the 80s and 90s, resources were scarce. And it tended to be that you had to be really quite sick and quite risky. So suicidal before you would get help. But then the help would be um, quite traumatic for the person who was receiving the help. Because by that point, things had got so bad. Uh, in terms of their mental health or, or um, their risk, you know, it would end up being that the police were called out and the Mental Health Act was used, you know, and, and the medications can be quite um, severe with quite severe side effects, especially when someone's been allowed to get quite unwell. The treatment becomes, so, the treatment becomes worse than the illness, it sounds like. Oh. And I think imagining if someone's, you know, is experiencing psychosis, so not understanding the world around them, yeah. <coughs> paranoia maybe, and then at the you know at the height of their illness, someone comes you know police come and 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 take them off to hospital and they're <coughs> you know maybe restrained, don't understand what's happening, give them medication. Yeah, that's awful. And that would be very traumatic. Well, and, and you and I were—you don't have COVID, do you? You get COVID nineteen right now. I think I'm just talking too much and I've uh, I've managed to catch my throat. Um we were uh we were talking before we came on about stigma and something I didn't realize is that in, in the I don't know if it's uh UK broadly or or England specifically or where it occurred but um you were telling me stories about how people would hit that that critical point because there was no there was no bridge between healthy and extremely unhealthy to treat people who are just moderately um, distressed. And so it took a while to get to that point of extremely unhealthy. And then once you were, you were like 
sent away to a, to a hospital, to an institution, um, often against your will, uh, what we in the U.S. Would, would probably refer to as an involuntary psychiatric hold, which, which we reserve uh, for very extreme circumstances, you know, Im- imminent threat to self or others type thing. But this, yeah. was, this was something different. You mentioned psychosis, you mentioned youth. And I drew the conclusion that that all contributes to the very negative impression that people have about receiving mental health treatment. It's like, well, you're going to lock me up and send me away to the crazy ward. Um, and it turns out that's not ancient history uh, for, for you guys. For us, it, it might feel like that because it, it was you know, some 50, 55 years ago that we started eliminating the, the mass institution of people in the U.S. And yeah. it really went away in the 80s, which is now 35 years ago. But for you, you're talking 20 15 years ago, even. Um, so tell me a little bit more about that and how, how you're, how you're experiencing it, how the field has progressed, um, and, and what's being done these days to normalize the conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I've obviously got this international perspective. Mm-hmm. I've worked, um, in the UK, Australia and different regions in Australia and actually, uh, had a project in Somaliland as well. Um, so, you know, and I can definitely say for sure that different regions have different challenges in their mental health services. Um, certainly the reason that, you know, I completed my training in the UK and in medicine and went straight over to Australia to do my psychiatric training was because uh, there was a movement in Australia called the early intervention movement, which was doing exactly what I was interested in, which was um, making mental health services friendly encouraging people to come early when they were just starting to feel distressed, maybe didn't even reach threshold for a mental health disorder, you know, like we use Mm -hmm. the terms and diagnoses actually to say to young people, actually, you know, you might not even have a diagnosis of depression, but if you're feeling low um, and you're confused and you're not sure what's going on, then, then come and see professionals and we can, we can start to look. And, And it wasn't just treatment. It was actually quite a lot of research to see if we could identify how to best, help people and prevent um, escalation of their problems or problems into the future. What are you seeing in right now? Uh, your, your work now, you, you're now back in the UK, specifically what is being done and how might the listeners um, adopt some of this stuff, maybe bring it forward? Because we're actually quite international. I mean, I know that you're you're going to be listened to because you're probably going to share this with some people. So um, I know we're, we're big in Cambodia. I love saying that uh, because that's where Safiso <laughs> originated. He popu- you know, he, he posts this down there and of course in the U S. So what are some emerging practices? What are you seeing? What are you doing? What's working? What can people take back and maybe uh, implement into their own lives or talk to their legislators about, um, you know, that sort of thing. Well, there's a few things. Um, certainly my research interest now is, I think, you know, what we've learned about young people is that um, there's a huge mental health need, you know, up to one in four, one in five young people has a mental health problem that that they think they need help for. But a tiny minority of those would ever see a doctor or a counsellor. So, you know, there's there's what we look at in our research field. But in, in general, that's just looked at people who reach help. Um, yeah. So there's a huge amount of people who don't sort of reach reach a doctor or, or re, but, but, but they have that mental health need. So my next project's really going to look at things like museums, libraries, sport. Um, so, you know, rugby. Um, uh, 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 sort of looking at this huge 
amount of things that people probably do that might help mental health but we don't know how or what people should be doing or how much of it they should be doing and you know this really came from people at the Ashmolean in What's Oxford that? that's a museum so uh, Oxford has some of the um, uh, sort of best collections of universities uh, in the world in terms of art and um, museum artifacts and that sort of thing so it was this thing where the museums were saying well we want to engage people um, we know we probably have positive effects on the mental health of young people, but how can we really make this um, as useful as possible? How can we design, you know, an activity or an inter intervention that would be helpful for the mental health of young people? So that's, that's you know, the, the project that I've applied for funding for. Um, so really, you know, I think that there's sort of almost three different areas. There's mental health services becoming more friendly so you know the sorts of work that pat mcgorry was doing in australia with the early intervention movement was saying well let's not sit in a hospital or in the middle of nowhere let's sit in shopping centers and malls and let's uh, help schools and let's really sort of um uh sort of make ourselves friendlier and more yeah. approachable as services and then there's the sector that's outside services and saying actually as psychiatrists we can't just sit in an office and wait for people to come to us. We need to think about what people do and that whole sort of self-help literature, which is great that people want to help themselves, but actually we should be applying our scientific brains and saying what works, why, and for who. Right. Becoming more specific and precise with it then. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some work around psychological therapies and a little bit about medication saying, okay, you know, and I'm a, I'm a sort of, uh, uh, a fan i'm a geek when it comes to evidence-based medicine so in terms of you know really making sure that we've got the trial evidence you know a randomized controlled trials mm -hmm. but just you know sorry go no oh, no i was just taking a breath and was going to say something because i thought you stopped ready to go on <laughs> no but really really thinking about the sort of mechanisms the underlying um so we so we think about neurotransmitters we think about um what's actually going on um, on a cellular level, but then also what's happening on a sort of neuropsychological level. So we know that even before drugs start to have a therapeutic effect, they start to have an effect on sort of our attention bias towards um, emotional stimuli. So happy faces and sad faces and that, and that sort of thing. And you can measure that. And so for example, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, what is actually within that, the, the, that is happening on a, on a brain level that actually has its, has its effect. So looking at, you know, um, really sort of simple things like three, you know, three good things, thinking about three good things about your day, does that actually have a, make a difference in terms of your attentional bias? And can that be made into an intervention that doesn't take up, you know, an hour every yeah. week for 10 weeks? Can we think of something, you know, can we think of those li little interventions that might, that might help people? Yeah, the, those are great techniques that I'm I'm actually really poor at uh, prescribing people because I I tend to speak in terms of big uh, systemic viewpoints, right? And I try to try to teach people what grad school taught me, which is the theories about how people perceive things and how they can make self change. And so it's it's very hard for me. I, I mean, I'm just speaking for me to say, hey, uh, do this uh, exercise three times a day for the next two weeks and report back, uh, because I, first of all, I don't have a short list of what to, to give people. Um, but also I, 
I think what you're alluding to there is that it may not be the right prescription for that particular individual. And I really would like to hear more about that because I think, I think the listening audience, if I know my people, they're intrigued by not only what can they do that keeps them out of the formal doctor's office or clinician setting. Cause we, I mean, why carve time out of your day and, and put resources into something that you're just going to end up with a homework assignment at the end anyway, if you could just do it yourself. Um, so some of those, but then also what is the actual chemistry and the, and the physiology in the brain behind those things that you know of. So that's two parts. One is what can they do? Two is why does it work and how? And then the third is where are we going with it that you would like to see when all this is said and done and your research is complete and other people's research is complete, what would it look like to have the precision so that we can have people self-analyze and then choose the right intervention? I think so. I think it would be around being able to give people advice about, yeah, which, which bit and when, what's going to work in who and when, you know, it's that big question, isn't it? And so some of my epidemiological research, so that really number crunching, geeky, type research that I've done was really sort of um, understanding people a bit better because we've spoken a lot about interventions and, and what can be done uh, for people but this was really looking at um, who you know who, who who's gonna really have a problem in a few years you know how much of this is distress that comes and goes and is distressing at the time for sure um, but but what of these things do we really need to worry about you know, what's going to lead to bad life choices? What's going to lead to unemployment and poor physical and mental health in the long term? And that's what that sort of number crunching type research I've been doing as well is. And really what I've been finding in that is I've, I've been looking at the Australian community and the Australian military. And really what I found there was you can sort of predict the future a little bit by what's happened to you already so mm -hmm. most people, you know, about half of people actually in, in the Australian Defence Force and only just less than half of people in the community have had some form of traumatic event in childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. may have had a sort some sort of mental illness, depression, anxiety, um, also in childhood. So it's really using those personal experiences. Have I gone through a stressful event? What happened to know your vulnerabilities and to think, what sorts of help you might need in the future or what sorts of things you might need to protect yourself against. So maybe uh, a, an appropriate analogy might be to, to draw a parallel between what's going on presently with uh, this um, coronavirus outbreak, pandemic, COVID-19 thing, and, and the push for more testing, right? More testing gives us more information on who has it and who doesn't. And then we get serological tests. We know who had it and maybe or maybe not is immune to some degree or another. And so the parallel might be to push more of these uh, instruments into the public's hands that we use clinically, like the ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, uh, um, I forget what the S is, um, something, but it's it's an index. Um, yeah, so that's exactly what I was looking at, adversity and, and, right. and, you know, sort of potentially traumatic events. So if people could self- uh, analyze with these inventories, almost like we do with a, with a personality test, like a Myers-Briggs or something like that, a type indicator, then the, then the individuals can, can have a better awareness about their, maybe their risk factors, but also their protective factors. 
and those protective factors like and for the listening audience if it sounds like we're talking inside baseball here risk factors are pretty self-explanatory what puts you at risk for you know harm protective factors are the things that keep you from being harmed like uh your healthy habits your diet your activities your exercises that kind of thing and from those protective factors we could then assign appropriate self-help interventions am i on the right track yeah i mean i I think another analogy is parenting so i think I think through all the sort of research I've done, um, you know, I think, you know, bad things happening, are, you know, obviously aren't a great thing, but we have found that sort of uh, non-interpersonal childhood experiences, things like natural events, car accidents, natural disasters, man-made disasters, whilst they're distressing at the time, they probably don't have the long-term impact on uh, sort of mental and physical health that sort of uh, more interpersonal childhood experiences awesome. like um, child abuse, abuse and trauma and yeah, yeah. neglect and it kind of just makes me think that you know and, and also the people who have non-interpersonal childhood trauma um, that isn't sort of associated with a, a childhood mental disorder following that they actually a lot of those people end up going into the Australian military interestingly and, and then doing okay yeah and it's almost like They've had a stressful, you know, people have had a stressful event, thought, actually, I've coped with that pretty well. May, you know, maybe a, a, a career in the, in the military or in health or, or something else you know, might suit me. I seem to work okay under stress. It builds it's resilience. Almost, yeah, either builds resilience or tells you you're a resilient person. Mm-hmm. And so my sort of concern a little bit, having done quite a little bit of child psychiatry, is yes, we need to protect our children, but I think if we're overprotective, we don't actually, I think childhood's an apprenticeship. I think we have to allow children to get to know themselves. 100%. And then they can make good life choices based on the sort of person they are. Yeah, and 100%. If we're overprotecting that, my concern is that actually maybe people can't make those informed choices based on what experiences they've had in childhood and, and adolescence. Um, that's, that's really, that's, it's validating to hear that because. I've said for a long time, because I do a lot of emotional functioning teaching where, uh, and I, and I anal- analogize it to a, a wave. If you ride through an emotional wave, right at the peak is where you lose control. Um, and then you get down the other side and you realize that you can, you could tolerate that distress of losing control and realize the world's not going to spin off its axis. Um, the more often you can do that, the more your brain understands that it's been here before and it will be fine on the other side all it's got to do is push through then you start to develop some self-talk that says this is okay you don't have to bail out or make excuses and um so the more we can let kids uh follow through with their their distressing experiences the more likely they are to embrace the next conflict or distress uh without avoiding it or making excuses or shifting blame or that kind of thing um, so that it's really, it's really nice to hear that from somebody who like you, who's doing it practically and not just in theory. Um, so I, I yeah. appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense for me. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's sort of helped. Yeah. I've got young children as well. So it's, it's kind it kind of helps really think about, you know, how people make choices and, and the information they have, not just about, um, mental health from researchers, right. but actually the information they have about themselves, their personalities, and how they, they react to stress and different situations to, to help people make choices about what, what they do. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the other interesting thing about my research was looking at um, transition from the military, because I think 
you know transition periods you know when you when you move away from one situation to another i think it it's possibly quite relevant to students it's prob probably quite relevant to, to what's happening now with the covid lockdown and certainly what i was finding from the um from the australian defense force was that childhood anxiety or previous anxiety is quite a quite a risk factor when you're going into a transition period um, so if you know you're an anxious person, you've got a history of anxiety, that you might be someone who needs extra help. Yeah, that's that's good to be aware of, too. And, and I think that if we as practitioners can understand that with our with our clients, um, then we can help them anticipate potential changes and transitions. I, I think that's 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 key. Um, but getting it out of our offices, our professional settings, and into the into the public is is where the real progress is going to be is going to be realized. Um, because I, I say it all the time on this podcast. The reason we do podcasts and YouTube videos and stuff is this doesn't do any good locked up in my head. I want to share this with people so they can go on and be healthy, and I can live in a healthy society. Um, I'm only one person with so many hours in the week to to see people individually. So you know, if we could push this out into the thousands or the millions, that would be great. Um, how do we plan on communicating this? Is there is there some idea or are we still too in the fledgling stage here? To yeah, no, I totally echo what you've just said. I mean, the, the research shows that, you know, mental health, there's far too much sort of mental health need out there for, for, for professionals to ever, even, you know, from primary care, I don't, I don't know what you call it in the States, but certainly yep, general same. practitioners, um, you know, it can't possibly, you know, fulfill that, that amount of need. Um, and in fact, you know, I think there's a couple of problems. So my first piece of research was actually in Australia, looking at, um, in, in a lot of detail, I looked at 30 um, adolescents, uh, people between 15 and 18, who were currently depressed, but actually talking to them in detail about the period as they were getting depressed. So before they could be diagnosed with depression, and actually, for a lot of them, they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what, or they couldn't, didn't have the words. And this mm -hmm. is something that comes up quite a lot in the literature, mental health literacy. And so, you know, I think, I think part of it is, it's not, you know, um, very sophisticated, really, probably sounding to you, but just getting uh, young people to appreciate the language and think yeah. about the language that they might need to use if they're distressed or, um, or that, or that sort of thing, because you know, there's just this this sense of con confusion. Yeah, we, uh, we're we're on Zoom and we're looking at each other, but the the podcast is going to be audio only. And and what you probably saw me doing is writing down mental health literacy. I don't know that I've ever actually heard that phrase for as many circles as I've run in, and as many boards and coalitions and committees I've sat on. That particular phrase, I think, is key. Um, among I, I don't want to say commoners or lay people, but you get my point. Like non-practitioners need to ha be fluent in our language, not our lingo. They don't need to know all the acronyms, right? But they, they really need to know the same as in physical health, like what a, what a pulse is. We need to know what, what uh, heart rate is. Yep. We need to know aches and pains. Similarly, we need a, a comprehensive understanding of one's own mental wellness in order to know when we've deviated from that and when a change has taken place and then we can clear our throat and raise our hand and go I, I, I need help over here that's awesome mental health literacy i gotta remember that yeah or just even the words for it you know for, for young people yep. just really thinking 
you know, and I've, I've had some pretty, you know, having, having hung around in playgrounds with my kids, you know, a child, you know, saying they're sad and a parent saying, you know, you mustn't ever say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, invalidation is, is hard enough um, when we're literally, you know, smacking it out of people. But it's, I think it makes it really much that, that much harder when we've told people to substitute words for it, right? So it's like, you're not sad, you're tired. <laughs> like, and, then, and then the kid grows up thinking this neurological <laughs> message that's being sent is like, I need a nap, not I need to go cry. <laughs> yeah, and with some poor poor four-year-old was crying and her mom was telling her you know she didn't look very pretty and I just thought oh my goodness oh my gosh oh my goodness what are we gonna do with this so so I think that sort of sense of yeah it's okay it's okay to not be okay and these are the words you might want to use and that you know um you know for for these different emotions or these different states yeah yeah and and be as as, be as precise as possible too so you can you know you can know what your brain is telling you and move through that um can, but also we, that sense, and kids are almost better at it, that sometimes uh, your physical sensations can reflect mental health, yeah. not mental stress. So that idea of, you know, a headache or butterflies in your tummy or however it manifests itself, you know, and, and I think we see lots of kids coming through where they're allowed a day off school if they've got you know sore tummy, but not if they're sad. Yeah. Um, and then sort of that whole reinterpretation and whole different language and whole different sort of acceptability where you grow up with, you know, these people grow up with maybe medically unexplained symptoms because they're allowed to express their um, mental health distress as physical complaints, but not as, as mental health problems. You know, I talked to somebody, uh, I can't even remember who it was, somebody important in my life, but um, they were, they were explaining how the, uh, the, the emotion faces on the chart in the doctor's office um, that uh, they, they correlated those to pain, right? So we, we added in pain as one of the, the, the factors of, of physical well-being, but the problem is it's super subjective. And, um, and so you've got this, this pain scale of one to 10. And I don't know if you guys have this, uh, you know, across the pond as they say but uh, the doctor would ask you like where is your pain for your wrist or whatever it is that's hurting yeah. and you're like well I'm a, I'm a three where the, the the smiley face is not really smiling anymore but it's not really like scowling <laughs> and the danger with that is that it's so imprecise and so subjective but now it's like we can't get rid of it um it's like it's like we need we need a face chart for emotional functioning or psychological yeah. functioning, but we need to, we need to get it right the first time. Um, oh, I now I remember who told me this um, and why it's important because now we've, we've calibrated pain and we can, as a bad thing, as a symptom that needs to be gotten rid of, as opposed to simply an indicator. And that leads to pain yeah. medication and over medication. So that, that's where that went. Um, yes. Yeah. And that sort of thought has to go into things. So really sort of, and, and I suppose as sort of epidemiologists, it, it's, we've sort of become aware that over the last 50 years, even though there's been sort of lots of mental health research, that actually outcomes for young people haven't really got much better. Um, I don't know if it's because we are better at treating them and we're fighting a tide that's just getting worse, as in maybe mental distress and mental health problems are getting worse for young people, or that we're just not not hitting it with the research that we're doing and the treatments that we're using 
it could be a both and too. And what I've seen better. a lot of, it could be a both and. Um, and. And what I've seen a lot of too is not necessarily the extremity of presentation increasing so much as the volume of people encountering distress tied to, and this is all hypothetical um, or theoretical maybe, but it's tied to a lack of ability to tolerate distress. So like you and I fall into that, that age group where we were, for, we were the first recipients of the, the participation trophies. Um, you didn't, you didn't get a trophy for winning. You got a trophy just for showing up. And so we never really learned how to like, uh, tolerate losing on the, on the, on the, on the field. And then we've handed that down to the next generation and they're, and they're growing up just intolerant of distress so there's that's couple intolerant of, like, of distress and this sounds this probably sounds like a terrible thing to say but actually i have to say having been acting clinical director for a time in the australia capital territory there was a group that were just incredibly over entitled and i don't mean that they mm-hmm. got entitled to mental health treatment of course people but there was just this sense of i don't need to work for this right right yeah, I, I deserve the all this. Yeah, and it was almost this dissatisfaction with life, and, yeah. and dissatisfaction that that someone wasn't just handing them. Uh, you know, they're awesome, and someone should be handing something to them. Yeah, um, and and a lot of um, you know, I'm not a big you know, and this is the other unusual thing about me. I'm not a big proponent of um, drugs. So so in terms of my uh, mental health treatment, you know, I would be very keen to use non-pharmacological non-drug treatments and in fact would only ever use uh, medications for people who are really wanting them with their consent um uh, and then i would be like you sure there's a good indication for this you know there are other ways of doing this so you know i'm not a big user of medications and so with these a lot of the young people i thought actually a, a cognitive behavioral approach might be better yeah or a sort of you know a, a talking therapy approach uh, which takes a bit of work on both sides, from the therapist and from the uh, recipient. And a lot of the time, they they were a bit like. Well, that's just it, right? So, so it takes work, and and we've become work averse. Um, I think against the backdrop of the internet, really. I mean, it didn't start with the internet. It probably started with, I don't know, um, microwaves or something. Or it's like, you know, you just throw your meal in the microwave. You don't actually have to like prepare it on a stove. And then it went to um vhr you know vhs and and dvds and then and then we had the internet and everything's on demand and then we have google you don't even have to go to the library anymore you just type in some keystrokes and pop up a million search results and so i don't what that's done is it's conditioned people it's my theory and i get to say it um i think it's conditioned people worldwide um to be impatient and not to have to go through process anymore and don't they don't have to wait and then and then because life doesn't always operate that way. I mean, think, you know, uh, things still bloom in the time that they bloom and they grow in the time they grow and uh, so on and so forth. But if you've been spoiled by refrigerated transportation and uh, produce available all year round, you don't want to wait for the tomatoes to grow. Um, when that happens, when life uh, reality, as it were, contradicts your perception of reality as you've been conditioned, you don't, you throw a tantrum. <laughs> and so it comes off as entitlement and so it's nobody's particular fault and you know it's not we don't blame technology but but it's it's real though and it's and, it's, and, it, and we have to deal with it yeah and it's also cutting down those um you know what i was t- saying before about sort of 
um, building your social skills and your self-awareness, yeah. getting to know yourself, getting to know distress um, and how to handle it. You know, I, I think, you know, screen time and certainly um, large volumes of screen time that, that a lot of um, children and adolescents are exposed to. Yeah, um, listening audience can't down. see me, but I'm, I pointed at my nose <laughs> and then pointed at Rebecca and said, you, you hit it. Yeah. yeah, it's just cutting down any opportunity, you know, young people have to, to get to know themselves and, and, and how to handle themselves in life, yeah, including when things are going wrong and when they might need help for their mental health. Yeah, we're surrounded by distractions that um, take us away from enduring through, uh, no, we, we just keep saying distress, but, but it, could, it could be anything that requires patience, right? Um, so when we get distracted through childhood by uh, the latest shiny object or the, or the television or the on-demand program. And we don't have to, I mean, we don't have to sit through commercials anymore. That was something that blew my mind the other day. I've got an almost five-year-old and an almost three-year-old. And um, I threw on something that had commercials on YouTube and my five-year-old just crawls down and moves the cursor over and clicks skip ad. And I was like, you didn't get to do that when I was your age. Like we had this, that was, that was like time to go run and grab a snack or go to the bathroom. Now we're just like glued to the TV and we don't even have to like tolerate commercials. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, a good, um, well, I suppose for, for people who know anything about anxiety, I mean, the whole point is, you know, if you feel anxious about something and then distract yourself from it, that anxiety remains. But if you feel anxious about something and you stick with it and you let that anxiety manifest itself, we all know that, you know, it can't last forever and the anxiety peaks and it, and it um, habituates, it reduces and, and you get to know that actually, okay, yeah, that thing that I was really nervous about, the anxiety goes, you can put yourself in that position again and, and not get so anxious and, and eventually, you know, you've got rid of your anxiety disorder. Whereas I, as you say, you know, the people just don't experience things, don't put themselves in difficult positions, don't, don't get to know themselves like perhaps they used to. And, and social media contributes to this somewhat because we're, uh, or quite a bit, because we're surrounded by everybody's best moments online. So it's like, we're not allowed to feel, um, anything that seems displeasing like we it's like we we have to compete with everybody's best face as it's represented through our social media accounts and so if my world doesn't look like the worlds that all my friends appear to have I, I don't know really how to tolerate that so I'm just going to keep distracting and distracting and then it seems like the anxiety doesn't go away and, and if you would indulge me a little bit I, I would like you to explain a little bit more about that especially because this is going to be published during the 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 COVID-19 uh pandemic but I think it's going to be evergreen because I know through my experience people have said my anxiety doesn't go away right and then I have to have a conversation about how that perception is inaccurate could you please share your experiences with working with people when you say what you just said you're like hey just push through it everything's temporary it will go away what how do you work with people who go yeah but i'm different or yeah but look the virus isn't going to go away it's always going to be with us now that it's out or whatever it is yeah i mean it's it's that situation and, and i think we've got different ways of distracting ourselves so people will say oh yeah i've tried that i've done that but i think the sort of um, I've done it through sort of hypnosis, but, but you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, 
graded exposure works in a similar way. I've actually, it's sitting with the, with the, you know, so anxiety, start at the beginning, anxiety disorders, essentially, you know, you feel nervous and you tend to avoid something. So, you know, the hallmark of anxiety disorders is avoidance. Um, so for example, if you had a phobia of snakes or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you would avoid snakes and that right. would be a phobia, phobia of snakes. And so the idea of this graded exposure is to, to expose yourself to, you know, maybe images of snakes and then, you know, be a certain distance from snakes and then get even closer. But the whole idea is you would allow your anxiety to increase the time that those sorts of therapy and when people say, oh, actually, it never goes away is if they distract themselves or do something to not allow those anxiety levels to build because we don't, you know, that's not what people want. People don't, it's sort of emotional pain. So of course it's the automatic reaction to somehow reduce it. Um, so people will do that however they can using distraction or, 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 or a way of making whatever the thing that is making them feel anxious less anxiety provoking but the whole point in the therapy is you have to sit with the anxiety you said something there that i think bears merit and i want to go back to it which is we we want to uh, i'm paraphrasing obviously but, but we want to avoid pain so um do we need to like as a society as a whole do we need to reevaluate that concept and and say maybe pain isn't to be avoided at all times I mean, I, I can only really sort of um, use my own experience and, and that research I've done sort of on, on, on that epidemiology of the Australian community. But certainly the overprotection and, and sort of taking children away from anything that could be sort of at all difficult or painful or traumatic and whatever actually probably does it doesn't help in the long run because it just doesn't allow you to to understand aren't we doing aren't, aren't we doing that with this approach to COVID 19 too where it's like death is being held as like the highest good like to to be avoided or i guess highest evil to be avoided and, and we've forgotten everything else along the way it's like it's like 70 80 years ago we had a real close relationship with death and we understood it but since the evolution of western medicine has just simply helped us to avoid death now it's like death must be avoided at all costs including the cost of potentially more death uh inadvertently through our policy decisions is that i mean am i and way off economics yeah i mean it's it's a it's a really difficult topic because obviously the issue certainly in the uk was was that you know the, the nhs is a great efficient institution our national health service but there was so little spare capacity mm -hmm. um you know we were looking at not just the death from covid but but you know just overwhelming you know the, the health service that we couldn't deal with sort of the things we can usually deal with um so that's the issue but i, I think you know um so it's difficult to draw that that, yeah. that parallel with, with covid yeah it just um, it just seems like we we suddenly now it have moved i don't know if it's sudden but it, it's suddenly apparent maybe that we've moved from yeah death happens it's a part of life uh to no one can die western medicine <laughs> will save us uh we'll, we'll all be super miserable and <laughs> but no one can die yeah. and i think you know it's, it's i think misery is just an interesting concept because you know 
I suppose, you know, as an epidemiologist or, or as doctors, we're really sort of thinking about um, what are the bad outcomes, what are the bad things that we can predict and, and what's just going to come and go. And um, I think it's so hard for, for, you know, the public to really think through, you know, that it, it's so complicated how to get into services yeah. and when you might need services and what diagnoses are. Um, so I think, you know, just, I, I think, you know, research to really help people use the language, understand the language, understand themselves when help's needed and the fact that they don't necessarily need to see a doctor or necessarily need medication. Um, yeah, or, or even counseling. Yeah, or, or even counseling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting because, you know, there's that whole uh, sort of, as we were talking about earlier, you know, what about this, you know, using technology and the internet to deliver uh, therapy to the masses um, and yeah there's some yeah the evidence is it isn't quite clear on whether it's as useful as face-to-face -face CBT and um, but I think I have that caveat that you have which is aren't we using too much screen time anyway right should right. we be delivering <laughs> psychological interventions through through the internet and what does that lead to so I yeah. think there's that sort of, I think well, there was a, something that and I appreciate that you brought this back around to the language issue too. Um, Cause if we can, if we can help people understand the, the balance uh, or at least the spectrum of what is miserable, what is bad, they can self-evaluate and go, you know, loosen their language a little bit and stop speaking yeah. in extreme, say, I can't tolerate this to this will pass. Right. And then go, well, maybe I don't, maybe I don't need to go, get it, get a medication, or maybe, I'd, maybe it's not all, you know, all terrible. Um, but something I've, I've realized too about my own profession is that we tend to, I don't know, maybe this is a Western US thing or something, but we, we tend to think that everybody has to come into the office and we're the, we're the saviors and we make this air of omnipotence that, um, you know, everybody needs professional psychotherapy. And it's like, no, that's, that's not quite true at all. <laughs> Uh, and they definitely don't all need to be hour long sessions and they don't need to be six months at a time for a week, you know, weekly or whatever. Um, and so I think if we can push that message out too, say, you know, uh, maybe things aren't as bad as they are. Uh, maybe they're, they're okay. Uh, let me just give you a little perspective, um, smack you on the button, send you on your way. And then if you, if you need come back in a month, if things are still bad, right. And then space it out a little bit, create some context and, and, um, and allow people room to grow uh, rather than pathologizing every little thing, which I think we've done as a profession. We've said, oh my gosh, you're, you're sad for too many days. Uh, so therefore let me help fix you. Uh, Cause Oh, by the way, I get paid to do it too. <laughs> um, yeah. Not that anyone would let that interfere. Yeah, that's an issue. And I think, I think the other sort of, you know, because I, th I think there's just too much of a divide at the moment between you know the 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 professional help or the the, the professional um you know doctors psychologists etc and then there's the sort of self-help world yeah. and i just think there needs to be <laughs> a movement yeah. where you know maybe the researchers and doctors can help the, yeah. the self-help world but actually maybe the self-help world and social media can help doctors actually reach the people that need to be reached i am so um, glad you said that I, I, you, you, it's like you're in my head and I, I <laughs> sort of hate it and love it um, simultaneously. 
but yeah, you're right. Over here, there's this professional protectionism that goes on. It's like, well, if you don't have a, the, the graduate degree and the license, then you're no good. It's like, really? Because I'm pretty sure that we didn't even exist 100 years ago. Like somehow humanity made it this far with people just leaning on each other. <laughs> Maybe we're not the be all end all. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, things like gardening and, and getting getting out and exercise. You know, I, I look out my window at the moment, everyone's running around, you know, running, you know, jogging because of COVID. And I think we have to remember, you know, and it's, it's awful. But, you know, spending time with our families and not rushing around all the time. And, they, they're, yeah. they're, you know, there's some, yeah, it's not, it's not great, but there are, there, are some, there are some upsides. But, I mean, I think, I think the thing that I would say is that there's things that have what we call face validity that sound good for mental health. And I think that's why mental health, probably more than physical health, has gone into the realm of, of maybe people who just kind of, you know, self-help life people. Coaches. Who, who, life coaches. I don't know. Uh, people who, yeah, I don't want to say don't necessarily know what they're talking about, but perhaps don't have a professional background. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the danger is there's things like uh, this whole idea of sort of debriefing after a, after a natural disaster or whatever. Everyone says something bad's happened. Every, let's talk to everybody yeah. um, because, you know, <clears throat> everyone needs help. And it's, it's great face validity. Of course, this is a traumatic event. Everyone needs to be talked to. So I was in Thailand when the um, cave rescue happened. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, was, I was asked by the, um, by the Thai um, health minister to, to sort of help out and to think about um, what people might need. And I think there's this gut reaction of, of, of let's do something. And actually, I think in that case, you know, it was very interesting, the systematic reviews and the research that came out afterwards to say, actually, that, that doesn't really help. <laughs> um, you know, so, and, and I think, you know, another example is sort of um, mental health first aid, where the idea was to sort of have m- far more people um, trained in de- delivering sort of, I suppose, like you would physical first aid, you know, the first, if someone's having a mental health problem, you know, the first few things they might need before they can get professional help. And actually, again, good face validity, let's, you know, it sounds good, you know, let's do that in mental health like you would in physical health. But again, whilst the people delivering it think that their knowledge and skills are better, the actual people getting it, there doesn't seem to be that much difference for them. So I guess we need uh, professionals, researchers to really look at what sorts of things help and, and help people understand what sorts of things they should be doing and why and when and who should be doing what rather than, you know, hey, everyone, let, let's go for a run. That's probably going to be good for us. Although, yeah. Where, possibly. yeah, where, um, where are you finding that research? Because that's something that's resonating with me uh, that I've, I've, I've been long frustrated with uh, is the, I love that phrase, faceful. I've learned three exceptional things now. <laughs> um, face validity. Um, so it basically stuff that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> that's like great. No, it's, and, 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 and so I see this, I see this a lot in, uh, so I work a lot in rural Nevada, uh, which Nevada, if you don't know, we're, we've got Reno and Vegas and then everything else is like sagebrush and that's not quite true, but, um, it's like 110,000 square miles and, um, 89,000 of them are not big 
towns, like more than 20,000 people. Um, and Reno, has, Reno Sparks area has roughly 400,000. Vegas has two and a half million. And the balance of Nevada is spread everywhere. So resources are deficient. It's hard to get things. And a lot of the work that I've done out there is a bunch of people with their fancy degrees sitting around a table discussing what the people of a certain area need and how we can shove it down their throats. And nobody bothers to go, what? they're not asking. <laughs> they're not asking. If they were asking, that would be a problem, but they're not asking. We're telling them what they need from our lofty perch. And so you saying that about the, the mental health first aid and the, and the immediacy after a, after a crisis incident um, of like just jumping on scene and like throwing resources at people, there's, it seems to, I, I want to see the, the, the research on this because I don't, I don't know where to find it, but it seems to me that that would make sense. Like we got to give some space and time here for people to process, to see if they then need more ongoing care not just yeah. jump in and presume that there's pathology existing because it may not yeah. maybe it may be fine they're totally resilient yeah and actually sort of you know the, the evidence i'm aware of is really you know offer practical support people don't necessarily you know after after a big disaster want to talk to someone like me or, or like you or, or whatever right. you know they want the help of their family and, and practical support and you know they, they call it watchful waiting you know, after a while, so some of them might have a problem that they need help with. Mm -hmm. and, and that should be provided for them. Evidence-based treatment should be provided as and when they have a problem. But certainly sort of saying you must talk about it immediately after a traumatic incident isn't, isn't particularly well, it doesn't inverts, an evidence-based thing to do. Yeah, it, it inverts our ethics too. I think it violates autonomy to insist from our, you know, professional leverage that someone needs something or that they, that we have to compel them into discussing something they're not ready to discuss. It's like, well, shoot, I guess I should, the experts telling me to, and um, okay, I guess I'll talk about it. But, the, but then we end up doing more harm than good because we're dragging them through a process that should unfold on its own, not on our time. No, and, and perhaps suggesting that people that they should be unwell or re-traumatizing them <laughs> yeah. or whatever we're doing, you know. Um, people have very effective ways of, of coping with stress and trauma. Yeah. And, you know, it's rare, you know, so, you know, some people get on, I think someone was telling me about someone who'd sort of got on the news after the cave disaster saying, you know, these poor boys were definitely going to have problems after that traumatic event. You know, that's, that's like, not yeah. what the evidence says. That's, you know? what, that's what you say, but <laughs> let's wait and see. Yeah. Let's see, you know, as far as I know, they, they've done quite well. But, you know, my advice was let them go back to their friends and family. Don't interview them. Don't, you know, expose them to, to excess trauma, you know, in addition to what they've already been through. Um, what, what is that about? Because I, I want to hover here for a second. What's that? Is that about our own insecurities about whether or not we're relevant to the world and we just think we need to like be everywhere at all times or is that like driven by uh, I don't know media these days you can see my air quotes on on the radio but you can't um, you know media these days which are just clickbait driven and emotionally uh, leveraged and targeted so it's like uh, look look for the problems our confirmation bias is telling us to look for the problems um, or is it or is it something else like I don't I don't know. I don't know. I think I think it's I think it's interesting. I think maybe there's an arrogance there. Maybe there's a you know I'm I'm trying to help people. So you know, I mean I think there's two things. There's a there's a I think you're right. I think in general, 
the way to um, approach research and mental health is actually to see what people want. <laughs> I think these things have to be done in consultation. And I think even from, you know, from thinking about what the research priorities are. For us to sit there in a, in a room and say these are these are the research priorities is nonsense. You know, we need to be out there talking to to people who have problems and say, yeah. what, you know, what, what would you like? What do we need to be doing? Um, so I think from prioritization right through the process of, of, of research and uh, offering services, we need to be absolutely focused on, on what people want. I could tell you with a pretty high degree of certainty that if 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 you and I talked like we are now in the professional circles, it would sound like heresy. Like how, how dare you say that these, these people don't need what we're offering yeah. <laughs> out. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, um, it's getting dark in your room. Is, I'm sorry, guessing I'm... the sun is setting. It's like 30 there. I didn't know if you needed to go or what. Um, for those you know, who don't know, I'm, I'm on the West Coast in the United States and she's in the in the United Kingdom and we're eight hours apart. So here it's like lunchtime and there it's like bedtime. Well, um, so essentially, essentially while we've been on here, I've seen people going for running, but at 8 p.m., so about 25 minutes ago, yeah. everyone went outside and clapped, clapped, um, clapped the carers. So every every Thursday night at eight. And it's what actually a bring it brings tears to your eyes because I'm an NHS worker and it does make you feel quite emotional. Oh, wow. I've only seen, beautiful. I've seen videos of that, but that, that just happened, huh? Yeah. And it's, it's lovely. People come right out and, and drum on their bin lids and, and play That's the bagpipe cool. or do whatever they do. Um, but, you wow. know, I think in this era of, 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 you know, celebrity and people getting excited about, famous people it's quite nice as an nhs doctor to have to have people come outside and clap <laughs> that is cool that's cool yeah, what what uh what town are you in i'm in oxford oh yeah that's right you said that at the beginning i don't think i was recording then um, yeah so it's uh when wow. when you we we only came back to the uk uh at the beginning of march so it's a very unusual time to to move at the, at the beginning of this lockdown i'll bet yeah um, we could honestly talk for a long time. Uh, I, I want to respect your time and maybe we'll, uh, we'll do this again because it's really fascinating. We can fascinating. reconnect again. And certainly if, to. um, certainly if any listeners are particularly interested in, in any aspects of what I do, you know, I'd be happy to talk, talk about how, that. yeah. How can people contact you and do you have, um, do you have any publications, uh, or, or, or what's your favorite book recommendation that you, that you would <laughs> offer to, to folks? So I have got a lot of my own publications, so I must send them to you, actually. Yes, you must. Um, I'll send them to you, but, but also, having just moved and lived overseas for several years, I need to get things like my Twitter feed and things like that up. So let, give me 24 hours or so to get myself sorted out. And, um, it's fine. This, this won't post for a while. Uh, so <laughs> so you, can, you can say it on here, and then people will look you up you know, in a week. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'll... Um, yeah get myself sorted out but yeah but i have got um an email address if people need to get hold of me um yeah go ahead and say it if you if you want if you don't mind um, just just say it on here and we'll uh... yeah so these will be on my publications as well so okay. it's uh, rebecca dot sheriff at psych p c p s y c h dot ox dot act dot u k dot ox dot act dot uk so dot ox yeah dot ac oh, wow. dot uk 
Okay. What's the AC? Uh, uh, academic. Oh, got it. Okay. Cool. Um, thanks. What, what's your Twitter? And I don't know my Twitter, so I've got to get that up. Oh, you, oh, you've got to get one up. I'll <laughs> <laughs> have to link it. I'll have to link it to yours. That's fine. Um, are you reading anything or listening to any great podcasts lately that you'd like to recommend? So I'm not actually, I've been, I've been working as an NHS worker. Yeah. Um, so I've been incredibly busy. So nose to the grindstone. Yeah. But actually those systematic reviews, so I'm a very boring person actually. So those (laughs) systematic reviews, um, about, um, about the sort of, uh, debriefing, those are those are really interesting so i'll okay. put them on my twitter feed and send you the address when i please get please do yeah and then all uh, what what we'll do is we'll just have uh Safiso post uh links maybe to the yes. uh when when the podcast goes up so yes well when i'm well connected again yeah 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 well thanks thanks for being on here um i always love learning um, I said I wrote down three, three things. One was mental health literacy. Two is the face validity. And the third, I didn't actually share with you, but anxiety's hallmark is avoidance. I love that. I love <laughs> that. I teach that anxiety is rooted in fear chiefly and um, often of the future, which is something we don't understand because it's not here yet. And so, you know, being driven by certainty and liking to know things, um, you know, the future makes us uh, scared. Um, but darned if we aren't avoiding it by uh, worrying about it and trying to control it. That's, that's really awesome. I love that. So It's funny. I, did, I think I did 30 uh, clinical interviews called the SCID. So you use the DSM to do a clinical interview. And I did mm-hmm. 30 of them um, early in my career. And it really does clarify your thinking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's helpful. Yeah, I don't think diagnoses are, are that helpful always. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing about um, what we were talking about young people. Actually, we found that subthreshold symptoms. So, you know, a lot of professionals will get on and say, oh, just being sad isn't, isn't depression and whatever. But actually, we're finding more and more that actually distress and, and things that don't quite reach criteria for depression, are, are, you know, probably have bad outcomes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and. Now, of course, you know, after I tried to wrap up the podcast, we're going Sorry. back in another direction. No, 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 this is good, though, because <laughs> it's one of my personal soapboxes, which is that um, we as a profession under the, the medical umbrella, we're, we're the only one that doesn't isn't allowed to bill insurance for preventative care. So there's no there's no like, you know, pop the hood, check the belts and hoses uh, twice a year, send you on your way. You have to be diagnosable and effectively broken before you can get care which is absurd. So there's these criteria that we need to meet in the DSM. And if you don't meet them, um, you can do something like, you know, not otherwise specified or whatever it is that's sort of generic, but then you run the risk of insurance rejecting the claim for this very wounded person who just doesn't happen to meet the ridiculous criteria that are very uh, rigid and sterile. Um, yeah it's, and the it's, danger in young people is actually we know those bad outcomes in terms of relationships and employment and suicidality mm-hmm. that they're, they're related also to subthreshold disorders so you know that is really unfortunate i think that we can't do more preventative and you know there's some stuff stuff in schools but really the, the things i'd like to do would be sort of around university age 
yeah um, for sure transition it, you know transitioning to to university or, or you know away from their their home household the anxiety really on campus is terrible these days yeah yeah uh financial pressures increasing costs um uh the, the need to perform the diminishing uh outputs as far as in terms of you know salary on the back end compared to the debt you take on I mean, it's everything's changed in the last 12 to 15 years i mean this is yeah recent. and it's made that area that period of transition really really hard very um so number four then and, and for an ill-equipped ill group of people who, who you know a lot of whom have spent a lot of time on screens and um well, you know, protected so yeah and protected and, prote and, over, and potentially, potentially overprotected, yeah. So the, the fourth thing I just learned is a sub-threshold diagnosis, or yeah, disorder, sub sorry, sub-threshold sub yeah. disorder. So I'm going to take that back now, and I'm going to train my uh, fledgling clinicians uh, how to articulate that on a prior author quest. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Well, thank you so much for, yeah. for letting me rattle on. <laughs> no, it's no, this is great. I love learning. I know, I know everybody's going to appreciate this. Um, it's first time using zoom. I really hope the audio comes out. So if it doesn't, my apologies, um, send us donations, you'll get better uh, quality. <laughs> <laughs> great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rebecca. It's been Thanks great meeting you and we'll stay in Thank touch you. for sure. On behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you great mental wellness. Have a wonderful evening.